0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content, such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The boss was sitting in his office, finishing up writing condolence letters. The boss hadn't slept in over 24 hours, and his eyes were like a periscope into what was going on beneath the olive drab cotton surface. The boss kept reliving the moment that he had confronted Andy at the Cock Inn. He knew that Andy couldn't keep this sensitive information to himself. He had to blabber to someone and be a thorn in his side one last time. Another memory that the boss couldn't seem to shake was Jack's threatening voice and the look of artificial confidence that he had aimed at the boss the day before. At this point, the boss had tried everything to be an example and teach Jack on how to take charge and be the leader of his own crew, and he threw every opportunity and lesson his way to help him. Colonel Poole was right. The Bull was no longer the boss's crew. The whole 530th was. After the boss signed his name at the bottom of the last condolence letter for the day, he looked over at the desk that once belonged to Captain Fagan and saw that his nameplate and the framed picture that he had of his original crew was still on his desk. Meanwhile, the boss hadn't seen the other two squadron commanders since last night, and he wondered where they were now. As the boss continued staring at Fagan's desk, that's when he heard the footsteps coming behind him. Turning around to see who it was, he was surprised to see that it was Major Elliot Gould, the squadron commander of the 528th Squadron. Hey, Colonel Poole wants all squadron commanders to meet him in his office at 1300 hours. Looking down at his watch, the boss saw that it was 10 minutes till 1 o'clock. Putting the letters in the outgoing bin, the boss followed Major Gould out and up to Colonel Poole's office. Walking in, the boss saw two men already standing at attention before Colonel Poole. One of them was Captain Eric Koth of the 531st Squadron, and the other one was someone who the boss did not recognize. He was average height, had long blonde hair, and stood with his shoulders pulled back and chest puffed out. His uniform was perfect. His officer's cap was stiff and proper under his arm. His shoes were shiny, and he still smelled of aftershave. This officer was a rookie. As the boss stood at attention next to the blonde officer, Colonel Poole introduced him as Captain Stephen Plank, fresh from the 92nd Bomb Group, here to become the new squadron commander of the 529th Squadron. After introducing him, Colonel Poole began his monologue. Gentlemen, the reason I've called you here today is because of a call that I had with headquarters this morning. Berlin kicked our butt yesterday. And judging by the reports, the whole thing was a complete snafu. Even more so, we in the 8th lost a total of 48 bombers. And for what? The target photos showed that not a single bomb hit the communications building or Tempelhof airfield. As you can imagine, Colonel Poole was just about one cup of bad coffee away from exploding into a vicious tirade so bad that Mussolini would shudder. With this being said, the next three weeks are going to be some of the toughest weeks we've seen since Big Week. Our next three missions have already been picked out for us and are being planned out as we speak. Make sure you have your best pilots, navigators, and bombardiers highlighted to lead your squadrons on the next couple of missions. Understand? Because remember, morale falls faster when we lose men for missed targets. Am I clear? The four men responded with the unison. Yes, sir. Excellent. Captain Plank, with you and the new guys from the 92nd here, plus that plane that we moved from the 530th over, and the new ships we have coming in this week, the 529th squadron should be rebuilt by the end of this week. Until that is ready, the rest of you squadrons need to fill in for the 529th whenever we have maximum effort missions. Is that understood? Yes, sir. Good. Now, I have went ahead and issued 48-hour passes to all airmen and non-essential personnel in order to get the morale back up on this base. That includes you men, too. So, enjoy yourself and do what you can to lift up your men's spirits. That's an order. And with that, you're all dismissed. Just as the men began leaving the office, that's when Colonel Poole added, uh, except for you, Captain Backus, wait around. Colonel Poole waited until the other three officers left before he asked. So I was instructed and notified that you had this Lieutenant winger run a bunch of bombing tests last week. Is that right? Yes, sir. I wanted to test his ability, sir. Well, I'm just curious. Why did you have him do a series of tests and not any of the other bombardiers in your squadron? I, um, I had my doubts, sir. Pilot's gut instinct. Well, whatever it is, I saw his reports. Kid's a goddamn good bombardier. Maybe even the best that you've got. If I were you, and when I tell you this, I mean do as I say. If I were you, I would put him on the tip of the spear for your squadron the next three weeks. Did you ever assign a pilot to your old crew? I'm still working on it, sir. Okay, well, how's your navigator? I see you had him on those practice missions, Lieutenant uh, Salvatini. His scores look pretty good as well. From what I can tell, sir, he knows what he's doing. Indeed. Well, Captain, I find the best pilot you can find and put him with Lieutenant Miller. Have yourself a strong ship and crew that you can trust to do the job. And when you do that, you can invest more time into your other crews and prepare them as well. Understood? Yes, sir, the boss replied before being excused. Two hours later, May 7th, 1944, 27 miles outside London, England, 15-20 hours. Jack was sitting in the back of a troop truck bound for Piccadilly Circus. In the back of the troop truck with him was Sal, Hillhouse, Benson, Parnell, Slim Jim, Grant, Nick, Tango, Bill Davies, Brolin, O'Brien, Sheila, and Coca. The ride so far had been an eventful and memorable one. The group sang songs as they passed around a bottle of Old Crow bourbon that Grant had acquired through his connections. And about 10 miles before, O'Brien had revealed a box of cigars and passed them out to everyone, apart from Bill Davies, who didn't smoke. The whole ride, Jack was keeping his eye on Hillhouse and Benson. Who were sitting next to him towards the cab end of the troop truck. The previous night, Jack heard that Benson was a self-blaming and traumatic mess, and Hillhouse had to calm his co pilot down and get him out of a self-destructive mindset. So far, Benson seemed fine, a little more quiet and reserved than normal, but he was smiling and laughing at Coca's wild childhood stories. He nearly went blue from laughing at Grant and Parnell retelling the story of Nick stabbing himself in the finger and Grant having to take him to a British hospital. As Jack currently listened to Brolin sharing a story, he began to feel mesmerized by the beautiful green English countryside that was before him. For the moment, the sun had appeared from behind the clouds. And the warm feel of sunshine, mixed with the cool breeze from passing winds, was everything good that spring had to offer to a tired and troubled airman. Jack then felt a the nudge and saw Hillhouse had his face aimed at him and was asking him a question. I'm sorry? asked Jack. I asked if you were alright. Yeah, I'm fine. Just um you know, enjoying the weather. I know. Isn't it nice to see the sun out and not have to worry about flagging a mission today or the next day? Oh yeah, and to think 25 missions sounded simple and easy at first, Jack added. Ain't that the truth. I should have known when something sounded too good to be true that it usually is. I'm sure it's going to let up. It has to, right? And plus, I swear, I've seen less and less fighters on every mission we've flown since our first one to Berlin. I take that as a sign of hope. If that's the case... I can't imagine that first Berlin mission, because we saw a ton yesterday." Trying to get away from the topic of flying, Jack allowed a moment of pause before he changed topics by asking, So, um, what are you, uh, what are you gonna do when you first get into London? Without hesitating, Hillhouse replied with, Getting a pint and then shopping for Angela? Shopping? Shopping for what? Well, it's her birthday next week and I want to get her something nice. Maybe, uh, you know, some kitchenware, plates, maybe even a dress. God damn it, Hill House. You're spoiling her right as I see. Her father must be happy that she found you, commented O'Brien, who was listening from across the truck bed. On the contrary, he never liked me. No? Asked Parnell. Hill House shook his head. Nope. He never has liked me and never will. But for the most part, we keep it simple. Except for that one time he tried to kill me. He tried to kill you? Jack asked with a smile appearing on his face. He sure did. Uh, I was over at his house one time, and his firewood pile was starting to dwindle. Since this was late summer, he wanted to stock up for the winter. So, he asked me to help him take down a tree or two, cut it up, and transport the wood back to his house. It, uh... It was a pain in my ass because the walk from his house to the woods, where we were wanting to do this, was about a mile or so. So transporting the wood by method of using a wheelbarrow across a mile of uneven, bumpy and accident-prone grass, that was a bitch. Oh yeah, I can imagine there, Koka added, and that's how we tried to kill you, Bill Davies. Well, not exactly. So we go out into the woods, and this is the only woods on God's green earth that does not have a single fallen, dead, or almost dead tree easy for plucking. And so we walk about 100 feet into the forest and Dave finds this tree that he's gonna take down and he gets his chainsaw and starts slicing into this thing. And soon I start realizing that he's cutting this thing in a very odd manner. So I start to feel a little uneasy about this. He then starts aiming the back end of this chainsaw towards me so that all of the you know, the sawdust goes right into my eye. So I start trying to move out of the way. Oh, I see. He was trying to move you into position, exclaimed Sheila. Correct. And before you know it, the tree starts to fall. And I dive out of the way just in time for the tree to collide with another tree, giving me just a split second more to get out of the way. The damn thing fell right where I was standing. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was trying to kill you. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was trying to kill you. Oh, Ryan affirmed. Yeah, well, you know, he didn't succeed, so... Long story short, it was well worth the risk, Hillhouse said, reaching into his pocket and grabbing a cigarette. Now, instead of a father-in-law trying to kill you, you upgraded to German flak, choked Sheila. Uh, and fighters, Jack remarked as he lit Hillhouse's cigarette up. Oh, and don't forget the cold up there, Brolin added. And our squadron commander, Pooka sarcastically commented making Jack roll his eyes. I don't know how funny that is, when that man's gonna get us all killed somehow, declared Parnell. Jack stayed silent and wanted the conversation to change as quickly as possible, so he said, No. No, what's gonna kill us is the antics we're getting ourselves into when we get into town. Well, we're gonna fuck the brains out of the antics tonight, Coca declared. You're not fucking anything, Coca. Not with your saint of yours waiting for you back home, Sheila commented. <laughs> that's that's true. But good God, if I was single still, and I wasn't married, or I had a kid, with the money that I'm making, and sending it back home, oh, I would own London by now. You think? Hill House added. You think? I know it. I hope our women, at least those of us who have women, I hope they know just how much we're sacrificing. After hearing this, Jack paused and began thinking about Marlene and how he was going to ever relate to her what his war was like. How would he be able to find the words to explain to her the ache that was now living in his heart and soul? How could someone like Marlene ever fully understand the weight of anxiety, fear, sadness and grief that Jack had on his shoulders at all times? Would she think of him as a madman? Would she reject the new man that he had become? The kind of man that would use a dead man's wife in order to blackmail him? Or What about the man who had lost his faith in God? How does one explain that, when the very thing that stole that faith away was something that a normal civilian would never get to exceed or experience? Even more so, what would his parents think? What would he say to his father? who faced combat, saw friends die, and yet escaped with his faith in sanity still intact. Was Jack's experiences somehow worse? Is that why his father never talked about combat? What Jack did know is that his mother would be heartbroken to see her son in the headspace that he was currently in, and it would pain her even more to see Marlene pushed away because of it. Before Jack could think any more on the subject, Parnell could see Jack's face slipping into one of melancholy and trepidation and called out to him, asking him a question related to London. Once Jack snapped out of it, he began engaging with his friends again and refrained from thinking of such things for the remainder of the ride to London. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a, we're sponsoring them. They're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic, and a veteran Come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal. The research is impeccable. And the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work, or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close, check it out for yourself. If you do, go onto the discussion page on Facebook and tell them that Aaron from Cancer34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of SNAFU? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in SNAFU. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. London was as busy as usual, and as the sun was creeping towards the horizon, Life in the Old City was only continuing to thrive as more allied servicemen and women entered popular sections of London, such as Piccadilly Circus. Exiting a pub across from Trafalgar Square was Tommy, Willie, Mason Pointers, Attila, Marshy, and his friends Shitbird, Apple, and Dooley. Under Tommy and Willie's arms were their dates, Betty and Patty who were able to meet up with their American boyfriends in London. Mason Pointers was staggering a bit as he had a lot to drink so far, and most of Marshy's friends were also heavily intoxicated. Marshy on the other hand was keeping pretty stable and didn't seem to be slurring his words or stumbling like his friends. Attila, on the other hand, had just drank his third beer of the evening, and not even the booze brought joy or light to his face. Mason mentioned to the group that he had took the horrible mission the day before especially hard and he had tried to cheer up his crew member as much as he could but to no avail. The group continued on to the next pub as they slowly made their way down towards the River Thames where Tommy wanted to take Betty for a romantic evening. As they entered into a pub called Chappins, the boys were greeted by a group of RAF pilots who offered to buy the American Airmen some drinks. Tommy, of course, thanked the gentlemen, but tried to decline their offer since Tommy knew that RAF pilots, even as officers, were underpaid compared to the American enlisted airmen. However, Willie purposely inserted himself by thanking the Airmen and accepting their offers, much to the amusement of Betty and Patty. As the American Airmen found themselves a place to sit by some stairs, The boys offered to let their dates take a seat at the table while they went up to the bar to retrieve the free drinks, leaving Marshy and his friends to entertain and amuse Betty and Patty. While at the bar, Tommy looked over at one of the RAF pilots who helped purchase the large drink order and asked him, Hey, thanks for the drinks. Can uh, Can I ask why? Sergeant, I'm surprised. I thought you Yanks wouldn't dare ask a question of why when the word free was involved. <laughs> I, I know. I shouldn't be asking, but I'm curious. I thought you Brits had the opinion that we, Yanks, were all oversexed, overpaid, and over here. That was all during the, uh, how do you, what do you call it? The, uh, adjustment phase. Well, okay. Well, anyways, listen, I'm still curious. Well, as I see it, you boys in the eighth have it pretty tough these days, with your generals being so goddamn stubborn and refusing to give up on the whole daylight bombing strategy. I mean, our generals at least have the fucking sense to bomb at nighttime after we got our asses handed to us trying to bomb during the day. Yeah, well, all I can say is we bomb less civilians than you do. Oh, right, don't start there with your moral judgments. We hear all about your bombing reports. You boys miss the target more than you hit them. Where do you think those bombs go exactly? In fact. I'm starting to think that the only way you Yanks would even hit the damn target and avoid leveling houses is if you started trying to bomb civilians. Well, you know, if we're not hitting them, then why else would they still be sending us over three or four times a week? Because it's not about bombing targets anymore. I'm sorry? Tommy asked, looking utterly confused. What? You mean to tell me you haven't figured it out yet? Figured out what? The RAF pilot chuckled to himself and replied. Oh, I guess the old saying is true. What saying? If you want to know about water, don't ask the fish. You yanks have a lot to learn. As Tommy received his beer, it was now waiting on the others. He responded, So teach me. Turning his body towards Tommy and taking a hit off a cigarette, the pilot replied, Now that you have those long-range fighter escorts, which by the way, We truly are grateful for that brilliant piece of innovation. Considering we were getting bloody tired of escorting you boys to the coast and back, day after day, the game has changed a lot for the Americans. Changed? Changed, like, how? Well, as I'm sure you have noticed, there's an increase of large-scale, deep-penetrating missions recently. When did you arrive in England? The end of February. Our first mission was to Berlin about two months ago. Bloody hell! That was your first? Yes, it was. Oh, well, if I had any regrets on paying for your drinks, I sure as hell don't now. My God, man. Anywho, before your patron saint of the United States Army Air Forces, Doolittle, came over, rarely did you ever hear formations being more than a few hundred. And even more rarely did you ever hear or see the heavies going deep behind German lines. Reason was, the German Luftwaffe would throw everything they had at you, and the U-men would have to have the capabilities of taking them down. So... Now that you have those long-range fighter escorts, those fucking massive bomber formations are the perfect thing to attract Goring and his Nazi thugs into the sky. What the hell are you saying? Tommy joked? Look, a thousand bombas is overkill, even for you Americans. The only possible reason for them doing such a ridiculous stunt is to attract as many German pilots into the skies. And then your hotshot pilots have more than enough fish in the barrel to shoot at. Wait, are, are, you, are you saying we're being used as bait? Is that what I'm saying, mate? I don't know. You're the one telling me. You're the one with this theory. I'm just saying. The German Luftwaffe has to be taken down before the Allies can step foot past the Atlantic Wall. And when you're desperate, you'll try anything. That's what I'm saying. As Tommy received all of his beers, he pondered on what the pilot had just told him. As he did, The pilot thanked Tommy for the conversation and wished him and his friends a pleasant and fun evening. After sharing his gratitude, Tommy, Willie, and eventually Mason Pointers returned to the table only to find Attila and Marshy's friend Apple had left. When asking where they went off to, Marshy said that the two went across the street to check out a shop and would be back in a few moments. As Tommy began to drink and enjoyed the bantering and conversating with his date and his friends, Tommy couldn't help but think heavily on the RAF pilot's words, wondering if he was in fact right. Back at Piccadilly Circus, Jack and his group had settled at a pub called Alfie's, which was along Deniman Street behind Piccadilly Circus and was the hub of American activity. Alfie's pub was roomy had plenty of seating, and the beer hit the spot of the thirsty airman. Jack looked over at Hillhouse, who was holding the perfect gift that he bought for his wife. It was a wooden sculpture of an open Bible, with a dove half ascending from the pages. The piece was in a storefront, and Hillhouse spent close to all the money he had in his pocket for the item. Benson and even Jack told Hillhouse that he was being charged way more than what it was possibly worth, but Hillhouse didn't care. He had to buy it. Sitting in the pub among his peers, Hillhouse had the item sitting on the table in front of them, with him sitting forward, his body hovered over top of it, and he kept examining the beautiful piece of artwork. Also watching Hillhouse was Brolin, who kept asking Hillhouse if he could see the prize. Hillhouse finally slid it over to Brolin. Who was sitting across from him at the table? With the glass of whiskey still in his hand, Brolin looked closely and saw the words Psalm 91 engraved into the wood, and the woodwork was so well done that it looked like the Bible was actually opened up to that passage. What's the significance of Psalm 91? Brolin asked. What do you mean? asked Hillhouse. They have the Bible opened up to Psalm 91. What's the Psalm? Didn't you go to Catholic school when you were growing up, Joe?" Coca asked as he stood next to the table, sipping from his third bottle of Coca-Cola that Sheila had bought for him to give him his fix. I did, but I didn't learn shit due to getting the ruler across my hand and my neck all the time and being a young man surrounded by naughty girls with weak wills and plenty of temptations. Which ones were the nuns? Asked Jack, with an alcohol-produced smile appearing on his face. Oh my! "'Was that a dirty joke I heard you tell, Louie?' asked Coca. "'Yes, it was. Jesus Christ, I was wondering when you were going to loosen up. "'I'm pretty sure you could have sharpened a pencil in your butthole. You're so uptight,' And kidded. <laughs> "'Yeah, yeah, where did that come from?' Hillhouse asked, looking just as surprised and shocked as the rest of the table. Clenching his beer, Jack replied, "'When you stop believing in heaven or hell, you learn to take things pretty lightly.'" "'Wait, what?' You mean you don't believe in God anymore? Hill House asked. Oh God, I shouldn't have said anything. Um, I mean, overall, listen, I'm on the fence about whether or not God exists. It depends on the day, whatever mood I'm in. You know, if there is a God, I guess it depends on what shit he sends my way. Because I'm getting the feeling he doesn't want me to like, love, or even believe in him. Replied Jack. Jack, all kidding aside, you really shouldn't talk like that. You can't afford to piss him off if he is up there," Cooker rebuked. "Listen, I, I I feel the same way, Jack. There's no shame in that, right?" Hillhouse Roland asked, looking to Hillhouse for emotional support as he slid the wooden sculpture back over. Hillhouse looked at Jack with eyes full of sorrow, but also compassion, and looking down at the passage engraved into the wood, he replied with, "All I can say is, while I don't share the same feelings per se." I can understand why and how you came to that conclusion, Jack. Alright, well, since you're a Bible believing guy, do you know the significance of that psalm? Jack asked Hillhouse. Psalm 91, and yes, I do understand the significance. Okay, tell us then. What's Psalm 91? Brolin asked. Hillhouse paused and then recited the following. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I shall trust. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wing you shall take refuge. His trust shall be your shield and your buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrows that fly by day nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give you angels to charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation." There you go. Jesus Christ Hill House, how do you know that word for word? Did your school not have nuns who punish for pleasure, naughty girls who seek pleasure regardless of punishment? Brolin joked. It's the passage that Angela writes at the bottom of all of her letters to me. I read it every morning and I read it before I go to bed. "'Oh, that's why this thing means so much to you. That sweet, hellhouse, House, it really is,' Coca added. "'Yeah, I just, I still don't know the significance,' Brolin interjected. "'It's talking about how, regardless of what's being thrown at you, as long as you have God, there's nothing that can touch you,' Jack explained. "'Yep, there you go,' Hellhouse added. "'And you don't believe that anymore, Louie?' Coca asked. Jack took a moment to light up a cigarette, and once he did, he took a sip of his beer and replied, Look, it's just, it's hard to take this stuff to heart when I'm the one who has to endure the arrows, pestilence, and whatever else he said, while God's the one who sits at the stands, refuses to help or interfere with the waves of the shit that he sends me, and then he dishes out punishment whenever I get fed up or tired of doing all the fighting and the persevering. After Jack spoke... He and Hillhouse locked eyes with one another, and Hillhouse chose to keep quiet and refrain from saying anything further. And once they were outside, Parnell asked Jack, What was all that about? What? Jack responded. The thing with the boss him just pulling up and taking you away and then dumping you off at the hangars. Parnell clarified. Yeah, not to mention the looks that you guys were giving each other at the uh, debriefing hut. Sal added. Yeah, I know shut too, Willie commented. Look, there's a lot of history between us, fellas, I can assure you. It's all worked out. There's nothing to worry about, defended Jack. If you say so, Jack, I don't know, though, Pardell added as the group made their way over to the equipment hut to get changed out of their flight clothes. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, Please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Down by the River Thames, Tommy and Betty were walking through the beautiful and luscious Whitehall Gardens while on their way to the riverside. Willie and Patty were just up the street having one last drink at the corner pub before meeting up with Tommy and Betty and heading back to the rendezvous point at the square. Light from the half-crescent moon gave Tommy and Betty just enough light to see their way through the garden. Walking past the statue of General Sir James Outram, the two stopped, shared a moment of laughter after a joke that Tommy had made about the statue, and then the two began kissing, all the while being surrounded by a half-dozen other American were British servicemen who were doing the same thing with their dates. As the two continued their walk down to the river, Tommy couldn't seem to get the words of the RAF pilot out of his head. Trying to keep his mind busy, Tommy then began looking around and focused on London in front of him. That's when Tommy felt like he had stepped into a different world. The air was refreshing, the image of an almost pitch dark London, but still full of life, was just as much eerie as it was inspiring. All around were examples of humans who, like Tommy, were fighting a war that they didn't want to be a part of or be thrown into, yet despite this, people were living life as though life was back to normal. Arriving at the river, just 60 feet away from the Hungerford Bridge, the couple stood in silence as they looked over the river, which reflected the moonlight and looked mesmerizing. Grabbing Tommy's hand, but still looking forward, Betty asked, Be honest, Tommy. Is there anything quite like this in America? What, cities with rivers? Sure. Sometimes our cities even have more than one river. Sounds like something that American cities would have. Yeah, but to answer your question, no. There's nothing else like this in America. Are you saying that our rivers are nicer? No. The river actually is quite underwhelming, if I'm being honest, and so is most of London. But there's something that, I don't know, has made it the most important place in the world. What's that? Tommy took a deep breath, turned his face to Betty, lifted up his finger, and pointing back towards the corner pub, he replied, That obnoxious bastard that for whatever reason feels more like blood to me than any of my brothers back home do. Tommy then lowered his finger and as he caressed betty's face he continued most of all you you're what makes this city amazing and you standing next to this river here with me right now that's what makes this river not only special but the most beautiful river in the world and while i know this sounds crazy maybe even selfish i just keep thinking about the fact that knowing that the last two months have led me to you It not only makes the shit I've seen and experienced worth it, but I can feel content about it. Does that sound crazy? Even with the low light, Tommy could see Betty grinning from ear to ear, and his hand could feel her face getting suddenly warm. Leaning in to kiss Betty, that's when she softly replied that it didn't sound crazy at all. As the couple then began kissing, that's when Tommy heard Willie shout out, Alright, Tommy! I'll, I'll be right there, Will. Tommy called back before he began kissing Betty, and soon the two walked back to where Willie and Patty were waiting. The boss and Steve Plank were sitting at the club along St. James Square, about 800 feet from Piccadilly Circus. The club looked more like a fancy ballroom, with three tiers of seating booths and tables along the perimeter of the room, with a wooden dance floor in the middle. The backdrop was a stage and a large stage curtain up against a wall with lights from below giving it a grand look. The boss and Steve Plank had polished off their glasses of whiskey and were enjoying cigars that Steve had purchased at a tobacco shop earlier that day. The two men had visited a couple pubs and even got a bite to eat before they arrived at the club and were enjoying each other's company. Plank was suffering from feelings of isolation from members of his own squadron because of him being so fresh from the States and not having completed a single practice mission, let alone a real mission. Because of this, the boss took the opportunity to end his feelings of alienation by befriending the new squadron commander and took advantage of the man's ignorance of who the boss was and his reputation that he had among his peers. So far, he and plank had a lot in common before the war plank worked as a lawyer in steubenville ohio and joined up as a result of his number being called up shortly after completing his pilot training his wife of three years had left him to chase after a 4f who carried no risk of dying fighting in a war that to her opinion the americans had no business being involved in plank was good at handling his plane and shared a lot of the same philosophies as the boss. The boss, of course, didn't share with his new friend about his wife, or really much of his life before the war, and for the meantime, he was going to keep it that way. The thing that brought the boss much pleasure about his new acquaintance was that Plank had doubts about his co-pilot that he flew to England with and was supposed to be flying mission after mission with before they were transferred to the 300th and Plank was promoted to squadron commander. The two talked at length about Plank's reasoning for not liking his co-pilot, and the boss rambled on about the importance of having a trustworthy and ambitious co-pilot sitting next to you. However, the conversation naturally had moved onto a subject that the boss felt uncomfortable talking about. But the boss was trying his very best to remain calm and attempted to switch topics whenever a natural and organic opportunity came. So you've flown close to a dozen missions... "'What words of advice do you have for someone like me?' asked Plank. "'Oh, I don't know. "'It's something that you'll have to experience and learn from just doing it,' responded the boss. "'Oh, come on. There's got to be something you can give me. "'I heard conflicting things from other pilots I've spoken to. "'Some talk as though we have Hitler running for the hills, "'and others are talking as though we're just days away from crumbling in our attempts to end this thing. "'Well, I guess it depends on who you talk to, I guess.' You certainly didn't hear the former from a member of the 300th. The latter, I can see. Well, you see, that's just the thing. I don't know who's been through it. You know, for themselves. Or if they just heard about it. You know what I'm saying? Again, every every crew on every mission is different. Some crews return from a tough mission without a scratch, while others return shot to hell. Well, which one has been your experience? Well, again, I don't know how accurate I'm going to be, because I'm just one perspective. Besides that... Let's not talk about missions and such. Tonight's about letting loose and not thinking about war. Well, I think I found my answer. Well, I just don't know what to expect. The boss began to grow irritated at the questions Plank was asking, but he remembered asking very similar questions to Mickey the night at the Red Lion Inn. In fact, the boss remembered asking those kinds of questions a lot to officers. The boss then remembered what Jack had said the night they found that hanging airman. Remembering how stupid, unrealistic, and immature Jack's line of thinking was, the boss couldn't help but remember the overall message of the poem that Jack had recited to the group. That's when the boss realized that if he was just honest with this rookie commander with honor and glory still in his eyes, that maybe he would refrain from ever asking another question like this again. So, the boss looked at Plank, leaned in, and asked, So... You want to know the truth as to what you can expect? Plank nodded his head. Okay. Well, the truth is, when you're up there, all the knowledge that you have of flying goes out the fucking window. Everything becomes instinct. The first few hours are riddled with fear, anxiety, and thoughts of self-doubt. And it hits you like a fucking freight train. However, you mentally burn yourself out by trying to stay focused and keeping your plane from crashing into somebody else's. Then, when you cross over enemy lines, everything becomes real to you. Then once you enter through the hornets' nests of German planes, seconds turn into hours, and the constant fear of fucking up or dying becomes a rash in your brain, trying to rationalize it only spreads it. And then don't get me started about the flak, because when that starts, you feel like every flak gun in Germany is pointed right at you trying to kill you, and god forbid a member of your own crew or squadron gets hit, that's a feeling that never goes away. It eats at you, but you you just learn to deal with it, either by going nuts or shutting it down in your mind. Tommy, Betty, Willie, and Patty were walking down Haymarket in the attempt to make it back to Piccadilly Circus to send their dates on the last train back to Haverhill for the evening. As they walked, Tommy and Betty continued to laugh, kiss, and hold hands. Meanwhile... Willie and Patty walked behind them, stopping every so often to kiss, fill each other up, and then realize they had to catch up to Tommy and Betty, which always turned into them having to run up and catch them. After doing this a few more times, the group finally arrived back at Piccadilly Circus and kissed their dates one last time, waving them off before they departed ways for the evening. You know what, Tommy? I think I'm in love. Yeah, me too, Willie. Me too. Well, what do you want to do now? I don't know. Let's go get another drink and then find ourselves a hotel room. You know what? Do we know where Mason and the others made it to? I got no fucking idea, but I just need another drink in me. I'm sure I'm going to lose my buzz. I agree. Well, is there anything in here that catches your eye? Yeah. What about that place right over there? Willie said, pointing to a pub down the street. As the two began walking down the street, they heard a woman's muffled screams coming from an alleyway near them. Tommy and Willie both gave each other looks of confusion and concern, but kept walking. That was until the screams continued and sounded like it was a mere feet away from them. Willie then heard the woman saying, Get off of me, please. I have kids. I'm not a prostitute. And then the male's voice saying, Every woman here is a fucking prostitute. Just shut up. Willie didn't hesitate, but moved towards the sound by going down the alleyway. Within four feet, Willie saw two figures and could make out the man from the woman by the sight of their silhouettes that he cast. Willie, judging by the sounds, verbal exchange, and the position of the two, that the man was attempting to rape the young woman. Grabbing the man by the neck, Willie sent a fist into the man's chest and threw him against the wall before throwing a few more punches in his gut. Willie then told the woman to get out and held the man up against the wall so she could squeeze by and exit the alleyway. Then, Willie and Tommy dragged the man into the streets, where they continued beating the man, all while a crowd of spectators collected and watched. It wasn't until a bus drove past with its headlights that they saw the man's face. It was Attila. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Snafu. A historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. Please leave an honest review on whatever podcast app you're currently listening on. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Cancer 34 Studios, a DIY project that's helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe in World War II. I hope we can do it justice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned next week for another episode of season two of Snafu.